welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back one and all to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and also uh, to be found on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. We're grateful for all of our, uh, our friends and uh, distributing partners. Thanks for listening from uh, wherever it is you're hearing this from. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined, as ever, by Dr. Joe Boot. And uh, we've, uh, we've begun last week, if you'll remember, uh, with a, uh, a series on the Ten Commandments and uh, beginning more, more generally with the law of God and what role that, uh, that law plays uh, in our lives, what, what role law in general plays in society, and how we ought to understand the law of God, uh, living as we do uh, in, the, uh, in the era of Christ and the finished work that he has accomplished. So we're going to get into how, how those things relate to one another. We're going to get into Christ's own treatment of the law and uh, several other stops along the way today. Uh, thanks for being with us. Before we dive into our discussion, several of you have, uh, have reached out to us about, uh, about this year's Runner Academy, and we're very pleased to announce that we have nailed down dates, locations, and many of the details for that training program. This year's Runner Academy is going to be in Chatsworth, Georgia. That's Georgia in the United States. We're running for the first time a truly international academy uh, based out of the U.S., and Applicants from all around the world are encouraged and welcome to apply. You can visit EzraInstitute.com to apply and get more information about that program and our other programs. We'll have more more details about Runner and about uh, our other uh, training programs coming up very soon. But visit EzraInstitute.com. Applications are now open for the Runner Academy 2023. So with uh, with that, we'll try to keep try to keep it brisk. Get into the meat of this discussion. Joe, you've got uh, you've got a reading from Scripture to uh, to kick us off today. Isaiah sixty four and uh, beginning in verse two. When you do glorious things, trembling shall take hold of the mountains because of you. From of old we have not heard, nor have our eyes seen any god but you and your works which you shall do for those who wait for your mercy. For mercy shall meet with those who do righteousness, and they shall remember your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned, therefore we went astray. We all are become as unclean, and all our righteousness is like a filthy rag. We fall off like leaves because of our wrongdoings, thus the wind will carry us away. There is no one who calls upon your name and who remembers to take hold of you. For you turned away your face from us. You delivered us over because of our sins. And now, O Lord, you are our father and all we are clay, the work of your hands. Do not be exceedingly angry with us and do not remember our sins in an opportune time. And now look upon us, for we are all your people. I wanted to read that in the context of uh, our discussion about the relationship of God to his people as we think about his commandments and as we uh, continue our introduction to the Ten Commandments today. 
especially as it relates to the fact that when we we talk about God's commands, it's easy to be sort of cold or abstract in our thinking and uh, sort of uh, rationalize these things in terms of um, a distant, remote legal code that somehow merely impinges upon us from the outside uh, rather Mm -hmm. than the reality of a living relationship with God um, who is in in righteousness and mercy, as we see in the book of Isaiah, mercy, justice, and righteousness, calling people to himself, calling the nations to himself, and judging the nations in terms of uh, wrongdoing. And I know that last week, we, as we were talking about the commandments, we said what is often overlooked is that the, the, the summary of the commandment in which the law and the prophets are summed up concerns, of course, love to God and neighbor. And the the commandments come out of that love relationship that God has to his people. And sometimes that relationship of love, of mutual love, uh, that is elicited within the covenant relationship seems almost unbearable to us, that the love of God is is overwhelming. It's so exacting. And I Mm. mentioned in passing something that C.S. Lewis said, and I know we wanted to start with that today, Ryan, you were going to read to us what Lewis said about the love of God. That's right. Yeah, we'll get to get a couple of quotes out here so that we can interact with them right away. Uh, so you you referenced uh, sort of uh, from memory off the cuff a, uh, a statement from C.S. Lewis that that we thought would be worth spending some more time on. And that's, uh, that actually comes from Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. And I'll read an extended uh, version of that here. So Lewis writes, When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man, not that God has become, not sorry, not that God has some disinterested concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. Man does not exist for his own sake. Revelation 4.11 Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we may were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. And here's the, uh, here's the really critical part. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must in the nature of things be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. 
what we would here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall in fact be happy. That's, uh, that's the, the end of that, uh, that lengthy segment from, uh, from Lewis. You know, writing as he does so 65 years ago or so, really uh, only more and more takes the hammer to popular understandings of what, it, what does it mean to love. Yes, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there with with that hammer, Ryan, if I may continue the uh, metaphor. Um, Rock on. With, with the fact that, that love in popular parlance and, and even in the life of the church has become increasingly an elastic principle, a kind of panacea mm-hmm. that is divorced from or separated from um, God's commandments. It's an abstract ideal. In fact, Christians who speak about the law of God are often accused of being unloving. Um, And there's a profound irony there. Uh, What I like about Lewis's quote, well, there's a number of things that are wonderful about it. But uh, first of all, the the exacting nature of the the love of God. And he, he one of the illustrations he uses there is the relationship between the sexes, that the love between that exists in the marriage relationship, for example, which is a covenant. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a, a coincidence that God likens his relationship with Israel to a jilted husband who has been betrayed. Yeah. Uh, and that Christ likens his relationship uh, between his people um, as the bridegroom with a bride. And there is an exacting love there. There's a jealous love there. Lewis uses that word jealous. Je- jealousy is often thought of as a negative word. Sometimes it can be, of course, but it is context dependent. Yeah. Um, Paul, uh, God describes himself as a jealous God. The apostle Paul uh, says to the church, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have betrothed you to one uh, spouse, and that is to Christ. Um, and the notion that you could have a that kind of intimate relationship, like the covenant of marriage, where there is infidelity, and yet still call it love, as though we can be in an open relationship. <clears throat> That's what I really get from Lewis's quote, that our relationship with God is not an open relationship. Therefore, it's not a lawless relationship. The covenant of love within marriage is not lawless. Um, otherwise the relationship would be destroyed. Uh, And God's love for us is exacting, it's jealous, and it won't leave us as we are. And I think that's the key point here as we segue into uh, thinking again about the commandments, is that God's uh, commandments um, are not burdensome and they concern love to God and neighbor. They're about our love relationship to God and then the obligations that we owe our neighbor. And one of the ways in which Paul, the apostle, utterly refutes the modern heresy of a, an elastic panacea, an abstract love that is unrelated to God's law, is given to us in Romans 13, uh, where he says, <clears throat> and I quote now from Romans 13, uh, verse 8, beginning at verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we come back to that notion. And I think Lewis helps us with that, um, that law and love are not in opposition. The, the opposite of law is not love. The opposite of law is not grace. The opposite of law is lawlessness. And scripture says that Satan is the lawless one, antinomos, mm-hmm. and that sin is lawlessness. And God will not leave us as we are. He labors to make us lovable. <laughs> so he does love us yeah. in this exacting way. And then he labors to make us lovable. How does he do that? It's, of course, through Christ, the work of his spirit, and the sanctifying work in which we're restored. We, we are restored to obedience to our Lord and King and his commands um, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that uh, reality, I think, is where it's so helpful, it's so important to start uh, with this um, relationship that we sustain to God and the the fact that God loves us so much that he labors to conform us to the image of his son, that he labors to make us lovable. Um, and he won't be satisfied the, the glory, the wonder, the awesomeness, the terribleness of God's love is that he will not be satisfied until we reflect his image again. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, the wonder of the gospel. And I think we might say that um, as evangelicals, we have oftentimes um, emphasized the rediscovery of the Reformation, one of the one of the, the rediscoveries in the Reformation of of justification by faith. And we've we've got that portion right. We've re-emphasized that we are justified by the Lord by faith. What the Reformation didn't fully recover and didn't fully state, uh, which needs redevelopment in our own time, mm-hmm. is not just justification, but the reality of sanctification also through Christ uh, and by his spirit in the newer covenant Uh, in which the law of God is written upon our hearts so that the law, God's righteous law, is not the source but the means of our sanctification, just as being put right with God, justified before God, is by the means of Christ's cross. And uh, we need an equal emphasis on both justification and sanctification. So as we we sort of wander into the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks uh, and to the wisdom, the instruction of God, in the Ten Commandments, it's remembering that this is because God is laboring to make us lovable and that we need to rediscover what it means to truly love God and love neighbor in a way that truly images our, images our maker. Perhaps an obvious point is perhaps the point that, uh, that you were making without so many words, but as you're talking about how the opposite of law is not grace, is not love, it's th- this popular understanding of love that we do have today is in fact lawlessness if it's it's not bounded by any terms it's not uh, it's not defined by anything aside from uh, our our personal preferences and desires on on a given day of the week you mentioned this this expression which that, uh, that comes from scripture how god has promised to write his law on our hearts uh, that's a uh, 
that's a, fa a fairly well-known phrase amongst evangelicals. Uh, but it's, I, I think it's important to, to remind ourselves that there is, there is content to that, that there is, as you mentioned, that, uh, that ongoing sanctification process that, uh, that we undergo. And that is sometimes a, uh, you know, an intense and difficult and, uh, a brutal process in terms of our own experience. Yes. The, uh, recognition of the, the the presence of god's law on our hearts can't be left in a sort of a vacuous sort of touchy feely kind of a sense of oh yes i um i've got this general sense of 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 god's righteousness um it is it does have content and i think uh, it's important to to emphasize that oftentimes we as christians as we talk about the law, talk about being dead to the law, uh, which is right. an expression that Paul does use. And we often hear Christians saying we're not Christians say we're not under law, but under grace. And therefore, suddenly uh, the law is is dispensed with and pushed to one side. And, you know, why are we talking about the commandments? Are we Pharisees or something? Yeah. Um, and uh, the that's, a, that's an absolute tragedy. And it's the mark of antinomianism, which means to be anti-law in the life of the church um, when that happens. Because what Paul is saying there is that because of Christ, who is the living Torah, he is the, the righteousness and justice of God made manifest. He's the one who kept the law perfectly. Right. He was able to die the death, the penalty required by the law for those who rebel and sin against the Lord. Um, no one can keep God's law perfectly. And uh, because of sin, because of our fallen and ruined condition, our alienation from God, and therefore Christ uh, bore the penalty of the law. In his death, if we identify with Christ in his death, then we have died to the law in that sense, which means that we, the penalty that was to fall on us for our lawlessness in terms of our relationship with God, the eternal penalty, has been taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we are no longer under the death sentence of the law. We are now under the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it would be strange indeed, though, wouldn't it, Ryan, if the very thing, the lawlessness which took Christ to the cross, which required the the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ is coming into the world that, 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 that uh, in dying that death, we might become the righteousness of God. That, as Paul says in Romans, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. It would be strange indeed if uh, post the cross and the resurrection of Christ, God said, oh, what was all that about? I don't need that law anymore. Uh, that's not important. Um, holiness is not important. Righteousness is not important. My law is not important. No, it was the thing that uh, required Christ's death was that we might be restored to obedience uh, through his justifying work and then his sanctifying work in us by the Spirit. So when the Bible says that the law has been written on our hearts, this is part of the transaction now that's taken place. So we can see the law in one sense as this external indictment, a set of written charges against us. Now, at the cross of Christ, 
those charges and the penalty, the sanctions attached to those charges have been cancelled. Uh, we can now have right relationship to God. And, 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 and that's in a certain sense typified for us, that external indictment is typified for us in the location of the law, um, which was on tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant. The newer covenant, though, is that that law on those tablets, and we'll come back to that when we talk about the law as treaty, but those tablets, which had the law written on them, uh, which was in the Ark of the Covenant, which we can no longer go and see. There's no longer a holy of holies in which there's the Ark of the Covenant, in which the tablets uh, are, are placed, as in the older covenant. Now, that law has been written into our hearts, hence Paul talking about the commandments in Romans 13. Not a different law, mm-hmm. but that law, and that's very clear from Hebrews chapter 8 and Jeremiah chapter 31, which is where that quotation comes from, that, that this law has been written into our hearts. So the change that's taken place, the reason we mustn't just toss aside the law with throwaway phrases like, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, or um, that... Uh, the law now is for uh, uh, for the birds somehow. Yeah. Um, it is that the 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 transition that's happened is that the the, the location of the law has changed. S- tablets of stone to the heart of man, so it's now fully internalized. The law is no longer limited to one historic people of God in their historic relationship with God, where God dwelt with them in the fiery cloud and in the tabernacle and in the, and in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, now that has been internationalized, Jew and Gentile, throughout, throughout all of the earth. Those who want to live and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ embrace that law as their way of life. And of course, anything in the law that's associated with sacrifice and ceremony that has been fulfilled in the priestly service of Christ those things we are no longer under. We're no longer under that administration. So that's what the writer of Hebrews says, is there was a different administration of the law there. Now we're under a new administration of the law in Christ, but the law hasn't changed. Mm. And so that is why when Jesus uh, breaks bread in the establishment of the newer covenant, uh, he does so at Passover, one of the key marks of the covenant with the older covenant people of Israel was Passover and the Passover lamb. And of course the blood on the doorposts. So Jesus at Passover institutes the newer covenant and um, he doesn't give a new 10 commandments. He doesn't set aside the law of Moses and say, now here's a new bunch of laws that, that, that no, he institutes the new administration in his blood. It is his priesthood. Mm. And he says, now remember love one another. Here's the newer commandment I'm giving to you. Love each other now as I have loved you. That couldn't have been said before then because it's Mm. as Christ has loved us. So we love each other as Christ has loved us, but no new law is given. It is still the law of God. So we cannot, as we approach this subject, lightly brush aside the law with um, uh, misunderstandings of isolated texts. We must read it in the full scope of God's of revelation of his covenant um, and recognize that um, Christ uh, has come to fulfill the requirements of the law and to put his law into force.
So Joe, we've uh, we've mentioned quite a bit about uh, about Paul and about uh, Christ and his role in uh, in keeping and fulfilling the law, uh, but uh, G- Jesus also taught specifically during his earthly ministry about the law. Uh, he taught to, taught about it extensively. Uh, what uh, what do we what can we glean from that? I guess what what was some of the uh, the content and direction of of Christ's teaching? Maybe you can give us a broad overview of of that. And what do we what do we take from that fact? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating thing, and I think we should start here. That if we are Christians, we're meant to be followers of Christ. And the ultimate example for the Christian is the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the first thing, one of the first things we notice about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he accepted the authority of Torah. Hmm. Uh, He loved the Torah. He taught uh, all of God's instruction. And... um, this is, uh, we, we see, of course, Jesus reading at the very beginning of his ministry from the scroll of Isaiah. Yeah. And we see him as the greater Moses after uh, overcoming temptation in the wilderness. And let's remember that when we see Jesus in the wilderness, and here we have, in a certain sense, Jesus recapitulating the journey of ancient Israel. He goes through the waters, through the waters of baptism, and then out into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And there he's tested by the devil. And there he overcomes Satan with the law of God by citing God's law. Let's remember that, that he it's uh, quotations from Deuteronomy. And then Jesus goes up onto the mountain as the greater Moses, as the ultimate lawgiver, as the one who actually gave law to Moses and now interprets that law with total authority. And I think the basic principle here is that if Jesus took Torah seriously, why would we not take Torah seriously? If he took God's mm-hmm. law seriously, remember mm-hmm. what he said in Matthew chapter five, in the passage that we now know as the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Playroom, that is in the Greek. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on beginning with the uh, the teaching, have uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Uh, and he goes on to expound various aspects of the law. Now, notice Jesus does not say here, you have heard that it was said, Moses said, but I say to you. No, he says, you have heard uh, that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, And then he goes on to elevate the law and also internalize the law to give us the full depth Mm -hmm. of the meaning of the law, the richness uh, of the law. He doesn't set it aside. And this comes out repeatedly in his um, frequent arguments 
with the Pharisees and the scribes, the official teachers of the law, who, by the way, Jesus recognized as the official teachers of the law. That's right. They sit in Moses' seat. Exactly. Thank you. They sit in Moses' seat. And they were supposed to be. This is why he said to Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know this? Mm hmm. He, and, and when he performed certain healings, he would actually say to the person, the leper, go and show yourself to the priest, as Moses required, uh, uh, to fulfill all righteousness. Um, and um, so Jesus is the one who we see constantly upholding the righteousness, the goodness, the blessing of God's law. And his, his rancor with the Pharisees comes when he sees them. Uh, using the law, misusing the law, using the law falsely, illegitimately, using it as a millstone around people's necks, he says, and not lifting a finger to help them. How did they create the, make the law into a millstone? Well, instead of recognizing the true depth of the meaning of the law and the spirituality of the law, they had made a fence for the law, hundreds mm -hmm. of oral commandments, which they thought were there to prevent people from getting too close to disobeying the law. Imagine you've got a um, a cliff edge yeah. and uh, uh, the cliff edge is the sanctions of the law. Well, what the Pharisees did is they thought, well, to stop anybody falling off, if we make a fence 500 yards from the cliff edge, yeah. uh, then nobody will get even close to disobeying the law. So they added all kinds of things in their oral tradition. And Jesus says, you have made void the law by your tradition. Oftentimes, the very things that they thought they were doing to protect righteousness, to protect the law, were in fact making void the requirements of God's law, like care for parents, for example. Right. Um, like the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy. Um, and so people make a mistake when they think, well, Jesus squabbled with the, with the, with the scribes and Pharisees. They, they, they were keepers of God's law, and Jesus was trying to do away with that. On the contrary. He says you neither um, know the scriptures nor the power of God uh, and that you have nullified or made void the law and you've set it aside for your tradition. And so we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus exegeting and teaching God's law, calling people back to it, elevating the fullness of its meaning. And of course, as Lord of both the Sabbath and his law, um, enriching and expanding and widening our understanding um, of its of its implications, and um, it's 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 just the last point before you you move us on. Uh, it is important to notice the context of the beginning there of uh, Jesus' statement about the not coming to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfil them. And that word fulfil, I mentioned, playru means end, completion, but also putting into force uh, the, the, the law of God, that that's what he's come to do. Not, not, no element of the law is going to pass till he's accomplished everything. And those who teach these things will be great, not in the old covenant, but in the kingdom of heaven, mm -hmm. in the kingdom of God. Now, the context is that right before it, you are the light of the world. This is verse 14 of Matthew 5. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, um, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. So when he's talking about being um, a light, when he's talking about being salt in the previous verse, so that's the famous passage there in verses 13 and 14 about salt and light, salt losing its savor, a light being set under a uh, hidden under a, a basket. Um, he's saying, let your good works shine before men. What does that look like? Now Jesus goes on to expound the law. This is what it looks like to let our good works to be salt and to be light is to live in terms of the law of God. So if Jesus took God's law so seriously that he defeated Satan with it, that he expounded it upon the mountain as our way of life and, the, and our violation of that law took him to the cross. How much more should we be concerned, as Paul says, with being conformed to his image, the image of his son, not as lawbreakers, covenant breakers, but as covenant keepers, that we should seek to walk in his ways and in his righteousness so that we might fulfill our side of the covenant and walk in love and faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. Him as our example, truly following Jesus. The problem with many Christians today, uh, and we have to all look at ourselves, I look at my own life, the problem with all of us as Christians today, but a trend within the modern church is that we don't, we say we follow Christ, but we don't follow him far enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that, uh, that exposition. The principle that you articulated at the beginning and then at the close is maddeningly simple, that if if Christ took the law seriously, that uh, that should be a clue to us that we ought to do the same. Uh. <laughs> Isn't it? Um, may, maybe you'll let me uh, quote John Calvin on that um, about the Sermon on the Mount. Just very I'll quickly. allow it. Uh, if we can quote the venerable uh, theologian of Geneva, um, he says about the Sermon on the Mount, and I quote, Christ intended to teach that in all the structure of the universe there is nothing so stable as the truth of the law, which stands firm and that in every part. And he goes on um, to challenge the popular notion that's popular today still, that Christ is correcting or altering the law when he exegetes it in Matthew 5. This is what Calvin says. It is wrong to reckon this a revision of the law or that Christ mm. was wishing to lift his disciples to a higher level of perfection than Moses could achieve. This has given rise to the idea that the beginning of righteousness was what's handed down in the law, but its perfection was taught in the gospel. However, Christ, in fact, had not the least intent of making any change or innovation in the precepts of the law. God there appointed once for all a right of life, which he will never repent of. So let us have no more of that error that here a defect of the law is corrected by Christ. Christ is not to be made into a new lawgiver adding anything to the everlasting righteousness of his father, but is to be given the attention of a faithful interpreter, teaching us the nature of the law, its object and its scope, end quote. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Calvin. Joe, you've, uh, you've spoken about uh, sort of the context of Christ's teaching on the law, uh, now I'd like to move into sort of the, the context of the law itself in the, uh, or the context in which the law functions. Uh, and uh, law, is, uh, law is given, uh, so when we say that uh, law is given by God, 
now we're dealing with uh, with the idea of revelation and law is given in the uh, in the broader context of a uh, a covenant or a treaty and a, lo- a lot of people uh, and myself included will are often will often skip over the what might, you might call the preamble to the 10 commandments and go right to the 10 the 10 listed commandments but uh, that first part is important where where the lord says i am the lord your god who brought you out of the house of egypt or out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery this is uh this is fixing the terms and the the parties to uh to this covenant uh within which the law is given and uh, we were we were talking beforehand that there's there's a lot to uh, a lot to unpack in uh, in those couple of uh, senses and contexts of the law. So maybe maybe you can take us through that. Yeah. So it uh, it's important to note that uh, as you said, biblical law is revelation, um, and it's the word of God, and we have to take it seriously, and um, the. The, the, the fact that um, man was in a religious relationship to God is, of course, clear right from the Garden of Eden. It's not that law didn't exist before Moses, um, but it, it, it didn't come in this covenantal uh, form as it's found in the uh, Mosaic Covenant. In many respects, we can look at the all of Scripture and recognize that the the message of the Bible is fundamentally about the kingdom of God. It's about the rule and the reign of God and Christ. Uh, uh, God is king. Of course, the, his king comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but Christ is king. God is mm. king and he has a kingdom and his kingdom is a domain. That's all of the cosmos. And there is no king without a law. So from beginning of creation, um, there is the reality of law that's the condition of life and um the righteousness of god of course is manifest to noah and to abraham we look at the judgment in noah's time we look at abraham's relationship to god as the friend of god and the covenant that's made with abraham that the apostle paul refers to in galatians the promise being to his not to the seeds as to many but to the one and so uh it's not that the Ten Commandments and the context of Israel was the first time anybody had learned of God's requirements or God's righteousness or God's right. law. Um, there was always religious relationship to God. But this is where it gets formed, in, it, it gets shaped into what we might call a treaty. And um, uh, up until now, we might say that the patriarchs had been passing on the reality of God's requirements through the family of Israel. But now as he, as God is delivering a people that he's called to be the bearers of the covenants of promise, as he's calling them out of Egypt as a mixed multitude, both Hebrews and Egyptians who had obeyed God, who put the blood on the doorposts, it takes on um, the form of a, the form of a treaty. Um, So as we look at all of scripture, we see the reality of the kingdom of God and the purpose of God to establish his kingdom uh, through a people. Um, 
we of course see the cultural mandate in scripture that we are to 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 live in god's creation and turn it into a god glorifying culture that was going to be required of israel they were going to be given a place uh it wasn't just about a people it was about a place as well the land of mm-hmm. canaan uh in which they could have the opportunity to obey God as his people, to be a kingly priesthood, to be a a, a priestly nation. Uh, And of course, we see that being applied to the church of Jesus Christ by the apostle Peter. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But Exodus refers to Israel as a kingly priesthood, as a people called out in terms of a covenant, in terms of a treaty. And there was going to be an opportunity now in a, in a special way in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had not been able to experience, in which God was now beginning the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham to give uh, an obedient people, a people of faith, a people of obedience, that was the goal, a land in which to live and in which to serve and obey, to worship and to serve, to tend and to keep, a land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, this was going to be the the great test, if you like. The first land grant, Eden, was was, was uh, forfeit by disobedience. Here's actually the second land grant we see in Scripture, Canaan. Uh, and uh, there's a promise of inheritance uh, if there is going, if there will be uh, obedience to um, the Lord. Mm-hmm. So uh, the. Um, the, the the marvel really of the the giving of the law and of course there's an incredible uh, prelude to the giving of the law because you have the passover you have the deliverance of the people of uh, of israel across the red sea um uh, you have some of their experiences in the wilderness before god is ready then to make covenant with them and um moses uh, goes up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai. And uh, it's there that having in Exodus 19, the people have been prepared and they have to prepare themselves. They're told they can't come near the mountain. Uh, they have to abstain from certain things. Uh, this is a serious business. This is now a, this is, it's, it's, it's in the language in scripture of an ancient treaty. Uh, 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 it's put in the form in which the people of Israel would have would have understood um, the uh, the the context of ancient treaties, and uh, you think about the the context of lawlessness in which uh, we see the patriarchs having to live. You look at right. Abraham's experience, for example, with um, uh, his wife, and the fact that he nearly had his wife stolen from him. He was smart enough to know that he might be killed and his wife taken away in the in the lawless context of the pagan uh, world. Uh, we see Joseph's recognition of his helplessness in prison, uh, mm-hmm. languishing in an Egyptian jail. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, righteous law of God to govern the people. There's no basis of freedom and equity. Um, no appeals process. Yeah. No, <laughs> exactly. So what we see for the for the patriarchs uh, amongst pagans is an experience of injustice an experience of lawlessness, uh, an experience of apostasy and idolatry. That's the religious root of all law. But here, Moses had said, uh, on behalf of God, let my people go. 
that they might serve me. This is what God was saying to Pharaoh. Let my people go that they might serve me. Let my people go that they might worship me. They might obey me. Mm-hmm. So here was the opportunity for this people. And God was going to give them a constitution and manifest into history a law order, a society, a covenant, which would be the envy of the nations. Deuteronomy chapter four is clear about that, that the purpose of it would would be the nations would look and they would say, who has a God like this God? Who has a law so righteous as all the laws that this this people have been given? So here, Ryan, instead of um, the ways in which the pagans saw law, which was really the product of man's mind, arbitrary law, here was law by revelation. Here was law manifesting the righteousness and the justice of God. Now, Moses goes up onto the mountain and straight away we see the the people of Israel revert to the paganism of Egypt. So while he's up on the mountain, uh, the people, it says, rose up to play. And Aaron, it seems, was helpless to stop them. And they reverted to the fertility cults of Egypt. This is this is all the while M- Moses is on the mountain receiving the law and and this is despite the preparation that God had uh instructed the people to fulfill to prepare themselves for this treaty. Now here's the key thing. Um when Moses comes back down the mountain he's holding two tablets and you mentioned that uh, sometimes we have a, a bit of a tendency to read the Bible through the images of Hollywood, uh, yeah. Charlton Heston. Yeah. And we tend to think of the, the commandments as, as two tablets of stone, five commandments on each. Mm-hmm. But in fact, first, what we, first and second table. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The first and second table of the law. Um, but in fact, what Moses is carrying down the mountain is two copies of a treaty. Two copies, one for the, the 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 Lord, and one for the vassals. Right. Uh, because of course it's a covenant; it's a treaty between unequals. This is not mm. uh, like a marriage covenant between equals, but this is a a treaty between unequals, and therefore it is a it is a covenant of grace, <laughs> because it's God's gracious condescension in entering into this relationship, this treaty, this covenant of love with his people. And basically that covenant says, if you obey my law, obey my word, and um, uh, walk with me, then I will protect you. I will care for you. I won't let the plagues that have come on the other nations come upon you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Uh, I'm gonna give, I'll give you a land and you'll be pe- there'll be peace. You'll be blessed. This was the nature of um, God's covenant as it's explicated throughout the Old Testament with Israel. Uh, of course, it's not just in the law of Moses. It's, it's in the um, prophetic literature where God speaks to his people, calling them back to his law. Uh, you see it in the wisdom literature, the law being taught father to son, the law being sung about and so on. We, the reality of this covenant relationship, this treaty between God and his people and so there were two copies, one for God, representing mm-hmm. God's copy, yeah. one table and one copy for the vassals. That's us. And, and of course, when, when Moses comes down the mountain and he sees them already fornicating and, and, and worshipping idols, he smashes 
the, the treaty on the ground. And he has to go up and God gives him another copy. But remember, this wasn't Moses up on the mountain with his pen and ink. It is the finger of God which writes the stipulations of the covenant. This is why this momentous event is used and picked up in the Bible, the Exodus uh, and, the, and the covenant with God. You know, how shall we escape? The writer of Hebrews says, if we ignore so great salvation, if if what was uttered by angels bore such a, um, a just recompense. So and, and Paul makes crystal clear that the 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 the, the reality of this um, of this treaty uh, between God and man is binding. Now, we might say, well, that's Israel. That was just the covenant with Israel. But the reality is, is that it's this law that that is broken. It's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, whether we're Jew or Gentile. It's that law. It's the everlasting covenant, as Isaiah speaks of it. It's the law of God, whether known simply because of conscience bearing witness or because we actually have those tablets in our history, as the people of Israel had. Either way, we're judged in terms of that law. That's why God sends Jonah to the heart of the Assyrian Empire, a pagan land, to preach repentance. It's why Amos prophesies to the surrounding pagan nations in terms of the law of God. And that's why Israel was a missy, was, was a mission people. There was a missiological purpose in this giving of the law. It wasn't that the law would be their preserve and them for them only is that this would be the gift to the nations. The coastlands, the prophet says, wait for his law. Mm -hmm. So it's this law that's, that's violated. It's, it's in terms of this violated law and in terms of the, the prophecies who come in relation to this law, the Messiah, the Christ, comes through this people. He is the, 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 the line of the tribe of Judah. And he comes uh, in terms of both the covenant promises and threats of that law, because remember the plans for the temple, that is the sacrificial system, are also given with the law. So Moses receives what is a copy of the, the, the heavenly temple, and he is to build, the, because the, the temple and the sacrificial system is necessary because God knows this law will be broken and violated. So Christ's coming is not in a, some sort of a, 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 an eschatological and historical vacuum. It's in terms of this treaty. It's That's in terms right. of this covenant. And we are, Paul says, grafted in. Mm -hmm. So Christ is the root. Now, Israel's disobedience means that national Israel is broken off of the vine. And Paul warns the Christian church, both Jew and Gentile, don't boast because if the natural branch was broken off, uh, don't think he will spare the, 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 the branch that's been grafted in. Yeah. So we can look at all of scripture here in terms of God's instruction, God's covenant, and say it's one great covenant of law and grace, Ryan, but it's under different administrations. And so the content, the context in Moses' time is this treaty, but Jesus renews that treaty at Passover in the renewed covenant, in his blood. And uh, there is the, now that we pass through death to life, through his blood, not, not on the doorposts of the lamb uh, at the time of the exodus in Egypt, 
But now the Passover lamb is Christ himself. Christ, our Passover lamb, Paul says, has been sacrificed for us. And we go out to freedom, delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, um, who is both the new Moses and the new Joshua, who now is leading us into the inheritance, into the promised land, which is no longer a small strip of land in Palestine. It's the whole cosmos. It's the whole earth. Mm-hmm. For the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So we now move out in terms of the blood of Christ, saved and redeemed by Christ, our Passover to freedom, to inherit everything and to obey his covenant law. So that the covenant is recut and renewed in the Lord Jesus Christ under a new administration because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. And now it's a new priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews teaches us that. And, and now we are sanctified, brought back, restored to obedience to God's law. The law of liberty, as James calls it, the law of love, as the Apostle John calls it, the commandments that aren't burdensome. So that the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, if you're in covenant with me, you will obey my commandments. And really, we, we should expect nothing less from the Lord, but that he would be faithful to and consistent with the covenant from beginning to end. Like if God sets the terms, he doesn't deviate from them. Absolutely. And Joe, thanks for taking us through that. Uh, this, this will conclude our sort of uh, preliminary uh, circling around uh, the, uh, the idea of law and commandment and context for that before we get into the specific commandments in, uh, in the weeks to follow. I'd like to uh, to finish. Uh, we were talking beforehand uh, about uh, the relationship between the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and the uh, the the broader context of law and the uh, the hundreds of case laws, as they're often referred to in in Scripture. And uh, you had mentioned there there's a an important example that uh, that I think would would illustrate that point as. Uh, sort of as general principle and then as application. Yeah. So when we talk about the law and and um, as we sort of tie this up and, and, as you say, prepare ourselves to consider the commandments in the coming week, we don't just mean the Ten Commandments. I mean, many, many Christians will say, yes, yeah, so absolutely, you know, I, I, I agree with the Ten Commandments. Well, well done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 um, <laughs> You know, one would hope that that would be a a bare minimum commitment of of a most basic uh, commitment of the Christian to acknowledge the Decalogue. Um, but um, the law, of course, the instruction Torah, which Jesus took uh, and the Apostle Paul takes with great seriousness and regards it as having authority, is not just those ten words, the ten commandments, the ten words, which of course echo the ten words of creation, which remind us that. This law is baked into the fabric of creation itself, hmm. um, that uh, the, the, the law also includes, and in fact, the majority of the law is found in what we call case law. Um, so the, the, the Decalogue, what we might call the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, lays down for us the general principle. Let's take the general principle, um, a, a simple one, thou shalt not steal. So there you have one of the 10 words, one of the 10 commandments. Again, we're not stealing because uh, th- th- this is God's re- 
a requirement and God as Lord and human beings as vassals are required to obey um, the law of God. And if we're Christians and we have um, embraced Christ, then we are now in covenant with him. And this is the, the process in which our own lives move towards sanctification. So we've got this general principle of God's law, thou shalt not steal. But then we have uh, case laws uh, in the Bible around stealing, uh, which actually help us to understand the scope of this law, what we might call the jurisdiction of this law. And it applies, mm -hmm. uh, its application is to both God and human beings. So um, the Bible actually makes clear that uh, we can steal from animals, that we can steal from each other, uh, and that we can steal from God. That's right. Uh, and, and so the case law um, and the instruction of, of Torah and of the prophets deals with all those elements uh, of that of, of a fundamental principle, you, you shall not steal. So a good illustration, we find that principle in Exodus 20, verse 15. That's the declaration of the principle. But what does it mean? So in order to understand the scope of a law and its meaning, well, that we often find in the Bible a minimal case that reveals the scope and jurisdiction of the, of the command. So in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, we read, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the corn or the grain. There you have an application, um, a, or I should say a minimal case, being set out in the case law of what theft constitutes. It's not just, and of course, the, the case law deals with this, that if you steal from somebody, there are laws of restitution that require that we um, restore what was stolen. And depending on what was stolen, that might be double restitution or triple restitution or more, uh, depending on uh, the particular case. Um, so if you steal $100 from somebody, uh, you don't just return the $100, there's double restitution, You're, you restore $200. So there are, mm -hmm. there are laws in relationship to human beings, but there's a case here of not muzzling an animal, a working animal, as it treads out the grain, as it treads out the corn. So there you have a particular case illustrating the principle. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14 says, it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of an ox that treads out the corn. Let me just go to that in um, my own translation here in 1 Corinthians 9. Okay, here we are. Verse 8. He's talking about um, his, uh, his own example. And he says, do I say these things as mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So what's Paul saying there in verse 8 of... First Corinthians 9. He says, I'm not just merely speaking as a man. Here's my authority, the law. Right. That's from God. This is not mere man. This is God. Here's the authority of God's law, Paul says. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. 
If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Do you not know, verse 13, that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So Paul then takes the general principle, thou shalt not steal, and the case law of a particular showing the, the general uh, jurisdiction, the general scope of that law, and he makes an application in this particular case to ministers of the gospel who should basically, he's saying, be paid, be supported in their ministry of the gospel. And so you see there a number of things, and we'll have opportunity to discuss them at length as we walk through the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks. But we see the abiding authority of the law, the principle of the law, the scope of the law, the application of the law. And we see the apostle himself applying the equity of that law uh, thousands of years later in his own mm -hmm. context. And uh, we're obligated to do the same. Right. So we might have to, uh, you know, to think, to read uh, sort of thoughtfully, obediently and creatively to understand how a law applies. But just because its immediate application isn't obvious doesn't mean that it's no longer in force. Precisely. So, well, Joe, thanks for taking us through that. This uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to next week where we jump into the uh, the specific commandments. But I have really appreciated this this setting up uh, of this from this week and last week. I hope that uh, all of our listeners are are likewise blessed. And yeah, if uh, I don't know if you're in uh, if you're in church leadership, maybe consider whether your pastor needs a raise. Uh, that's uh, there's something you can take away from this week's uh, week's episode. <laughs> Yeah. Well, from uh, from all of us at the Ezra Institute, we remind you again that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified and we'll be with you again next week. 